American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Welcome to episode 193 of American Timelines. Do I sound? Let like me say Amy? your name. My name is Amy. You're, oh. na- you're not Amy. <laughs> I'm. Ooh, I'm Audrey, the one and only. And I'm Joe, or Grover Cleveland Steamer, as some people call me. Who's that? That's my name. That's my podcast name. You know what my podcast name is? No. What? You're not very good at improvising. I can't disclose it on here. Well, this is a podcast. This is where you should disclose your podcast name on the podcast. I don't think it's family friendly. No, I'm kidding. That's okay. It doesn't have to be My family. podcast name is Danny DeVito, so you know what to refer to me as. Did you hear about that That girl that Why went to prom? She in here. Sorry, keep going. Did you hear about that girl that went to prom with a, she took a cardboard cutout of Danny DeVito to prom with her? Then, I wish that was me. And then Danny DeVito found out about it, and then he, he like went and he had a a picture of her turned into a cardboard cutout, and then <laughs> and got his, and took her to some kind of form the cardboard cutout of her somewhere <laughs> to a date. Isn't that funny? Yeah. You didn't hear about that? No. Was uh, that on TikTok? Yeah, it was somewhere on TikTok or something. And I heard about that recently, and I thought of you because you wanted to steal my cardboard. I didn't want to steal it. I wanted to borrow it. I don't even know where that is now. I think yeah. So you don't even use it. Well, it's it. We took we put it in storage for the comedy festival. Anyway, welcome to another episode of American Timelines. My name is Joe, and Amy unfortunately is ill, so we have a replacement, and it is her thirteen-year-old daughter, Audrey. Her thirteen-year-old terrorist daughter, Audrey. Welcome, Audrey, to American Timelines. Hello. You've been on here before, haven't you? Yeah. Couple and I times, kind of, I kind of regret it. Was I wasn't I like nine? Well, that was the first time we we did. What, yeah. what, what would a nine year old girl think? If you if you've seen that episode, please listen. To please delete episode. it from your from your brain. From like your that brain. is really embarrassing. No, it was adorable. No, it wasn't. Because like, why did I talk like that? Because <laughs> hey. you you <laughs> had mentioned that you uh, mm-hmm. had to say no to drugs, and that you saw a video about kids doing crack and beer. <laughs> And those were drugs in your mind. I was, was so funny. annoying. Hey. Was? Up. What do you mean, was? Well, you know what? Still are. Let's get into the timeline. We're jumping into a new year, 1957. So we finished 1956 last episode. And Audrey, one thing we do here on American Timelines is when we start a new year, there are some things that happened in that year that I don't have like specific dates for, but it was like as of 1957, this happened. And here are some things I'm going to just go into to just share with you some things that happened in 1957, but we don't know exact dates. Okay. Okay? I'm ready. There's a guy named James Vickery. He's known for a movie theater experiment in 1957 in Fort Lee, New Jersey. And he announced that he had invented subliminal advertising. 
What does that mean? Uh, so that this is why I was worried about having you on here because I have to explain to you what subliminal means. But no, I know. So what sub- I'll explain. What, what does subliminal mean? Do you think? I think it means like you don't realize something's happening, but it's happening. Yeah, kind of. Like so, it's your like conscious. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So he flashed the words "hungry," "eat popcorn," and "thirsty," "drink Coke." Very fast between film frames. So it was like a film, but every once in a while the film would just, the words hungry, eat popcorn, would pop up on it like real fast. So you almost don't even realize it's there. Yeah. And he did that on purpose to try to get people to buy popcorn and Coke. Yeah. And he did a press release claiming that 45,699 people were exposed to these subliminal projections, telling them to eat popcorn and drink Coca Cola. Mm-hmm. And he said it caused a 57.5% sales increase for popcorn and an 18% uh, increase in Coca-Cola sales. You want to know how I know what sub- subliminal means? Now, how do you know what subliminal means? Because <laughs> this is going to sound kind of dumb. Well, everything I say sounds dumb, so but go for it. on TikTok, yeah, oh there's accounts where like they pop up on my For You page, like the videos. And they're called like subliminal something. And it's basically, it's like... Interact three times to get your dream body or like your dream nose or to become popular, date your crush, all this stuff. Yeah. And it's like, like you listen to the sound that they chose. Yeah. And like, you know, it'll like happen if you just listen to it a lot. And they'll like take, they'll like take screenshots from their like Instagram DMs and it would be like, it would be before and after photos. Yeah. And it would be like the slightest difference. And they'd be like, guys, look at my subliminal results. And everyone would be like, oh, my God, they I'm going to try it now. They call them subliminal results? Yeah, because you listen to it and... Uh, it no. makes you thinner? <laughs> Apparently. Uh, well, I'm sad about the state of affairs. Anyway, so this guy later, I guess, said he made it all up and didn't really happen to it. But um, it led to a widespread acceptance of subliminal messaging. Even today, people still believe in the subliminal messaging that it works. Do you think it works? Maybe. I don't know. There was a guy named Kevin Nealon who used to be on Saturday Night Live and he would he was called Subliminal Man. <laughs> he would he would like tell tell things on the news and he would just say the subliminal was real small like <laughs> I can't I can't think of it. I wish I could think of an example off the top of my head. But he'd be like, "Oh, there was a Republican convention today, idiots. That were and they were t- <laughs> meeting in a mean dumbasses, you know, and they spoke for 2 hours." Long-winded idiots, you know, things like that. Like, where you just say, that was Mr. Subliminal. Subliminal. I, f- I feel like it works in, like, to a certain, like, extent, you know? Like, I don't think, like, listening to a TikTok sound will make you thinner overnight, but I think, like... Now, that brings us into uh, hypnotism. One time, my buddy Steve Bishop, who you know as Gruff from the Gruff and Loud Show, on yeah. YouTube, check it out. Uh, he and I were probably your age, maybe a little bit younger. We're probably in... And we're probably in fifth grade, so we're a little bit younger. But we went with Way his. Younger. We went with his mom to Cleveland, which is like two hours away. One time to spend the night at like her mom had a friend in Cleveland. They they wanted to go out, and she couldn't get a babysitter, so she brought him with us with her, and he took me. So they got to go out to the bars while he and I just hung out at her this strange apartment in Cleveland, and we did we ran out of stuff to do with this woman, this single woman's apartment, and mm-hmm. we found a tape, cassette tape that was a weight loss hypnotism tape. And it was basically, and we put it in and we listened to it and it said basically, lay down, turn off the lights and close your eyes 
And then it was just like a woman repeating, you are not hungry. You will not eat. You will not eat any more snacks. You don't That's need so snacks. Toxic. It was just over and over and over. And it was like this poor lady was trying to lose weight listening to it. And we tried it. We tried to get hypnotized into losing weight. And I don't think it worked. I see those like because we're both fat jerks now. Those YouTube videos, um, those YouTube videos where it's like, it's always like the the like the the famous YouTubers or whatever, and they always like hire like a hypnotist, and like it always works. And I want to try that because I'm so skeptical about it. Like no, I don't. I think, won't work. That's why their YouTube page though it has to work. Yeah, like right. I don't think it works. More things about 1957, uh, <clears throat> Tokyo Telecommunications Engineering Corporation which ended up becoming Sony later, produced a pocket-sized radio for the first time in 1957. But the radio, unfortunately, was too big to fit in an actual pocket. So Akio Morita, the co-founder of Sony, made his employees wear shirts with larger pockets to give the radio a pocket-sized appearance. That's <laughs> so stupid. Killer bees. Do you know, have you been ever heard of killer bees? When I was a kid, when I was your age, I was afraid of killer bees. You ever heard of killer bees? I've heard of killer. I've heard like, I've heard of like wasps, like wasps where they're like stings are poisonous. Yeah, you've never heard. You've never been afraid of the killer bees are coming. They're coming down from the I'm south and they're of coming bees. up. The killer bees are coming and they're going to take over and kill everyone. Swarms of killer bees. I'm not. A, I'm not afraid of bees. You're not. Well, no. I was I, when I was a kid. I was afraid of these killer bees that were supposedly coming and. I found out in 1957 is when killer bees were made. They were a man-made hybrid species that are only found in the wild because African honeybees accidentally escaped from a scientist in Brazil. And then they met with the local European honeybees and created a more aggressive bee, although the hybrids have a little less venom. But it all began in a lab near Rio Claro in Brazil around 1957. Biologist Warwick E. Kerr, was commissioned by the Brazilian government to create a species of bee that produced more honey. So he was trying to make more honey. And that European species of honeybees had been introduced to South America, but unfortunately they proved to be fairly unproductive in the sleepy heat of Brazil. So these European bees didn't work because it was too hot. Mm-hmm. So they just sat in a hammock all day drinking lemonade, <laughs> according to uh, Eric Musson uh, at UC Davis. It was kind of a joke. But he said, not having much experience with animal breeding, this uh, Dr. Kerr thought that if he could introduce into European honeybees some African genes, the results would be a hybrid that would work better at collecting honey in a tropical setting because uh, they're used to being in a hotter temperature than the temperate climate European honeybees. And so that's how the whole thing happened. That's why the whole thing happened. They escaped. Uh and they became killer bees, and but I don't think they're going to come. I don't think anybody's going to get destroyed by killer bees. This is actually according to lflscience.com, or said iflscience.com. Uh, I read that article. So there you go. Wait, the Cadillac Eldorado Brougham was a car. It was a new car in 1957 that came standard with a mini bar in the glove compartment. I want a mini bar in my glove compartment. You open up the glove compartment, it was a bunch of alcohol. <laughs> That's you, not... So you could drink while you're driving. It was a Disney movie. Yeah. Like a long time ago. Well, not a long time ago, but like five years ago-ish. Yeah. They, like, for called, you, that was a long time ago. called Descendants. You know that one? And basically, they like, in a summary, they got in a limo because they were going somewhere. And they yeah. and like the limo had a hole like... 
mini bar? Like a big thing of like, yeah. But it wasn't alcohol, obviously, because it was a Disney show. So it was all candy and like soda and stuff. Oh, so for and you, I, a mini bar is candy and soda and, and stuff. And so I always wanted that. I was like, I'm going to get Someday. that. Someday. I was like, I'm going to get that in my car. Also, 1957, a large pizza hut from, a large cheese pizza from Pizza Hut was $1.50. You know how much a large pizza is now? You probably don't have any reference for this. Like six, like six dollars. Six dollars. I don't know. It's probably fifteen dollars, bruh. Okay, calm down. Okay, bruh. have you ever heard of Kent cigarettes? Yeah, it's my favorite brand. They had asbestos filters from 1952 to 1957. They were marketed as offering the greatest health protection in the history of cigarettes with asbestos filters. That doesn't make any sense. Asbestos is not good for you. Okay. Also, nineteen fifty-seven, bubble wrap was accidentally invented. Alfred Fielding and Mark Chavines accidentally invented it. They were trying to create plastic wallpaper. Oh, yeah. I heard about that. And it didn't sell well. And then they tried to market it as a greenhouse insulator, and that didn't sell well. So they eventually decided to sell it as bubble wrap. You knew that how bubble wrap came? Yeah. How'd I think you know I saw that? it on TikTok. Uh, everything is on TikTok. Do you ever search things on TikTok? If you want to know something, do you just go- it's search usually, it on TikTok? Usually I Google it, but if it's something about like drama between two like influencers, <laughs> then I'll look it up on TikTok because like everybody on TikTok. But it's so annoying. It's so annoying because like <sighs> you want to know something that happened and then you search it up and it's like a three minute video explaining like this and this and somebody's backstory. Like I really don't care. Just get to the point. Oh my gosh. That's what's wrong with society, folks. And I think we have a lot of listeners that are older that like true crime and like to listen to two Gen Xers, and they're listening to a Zoomer, a young Zoomer, at this point, talk about TikTok and influencers. And I'm going to take your phone if you don't start listening. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm listening. No, I swear I'm listening. I just need to. I just need to. I just. You need can't to be talk doing two things at once. I just need to talk to Peyton. Do we need to take can a I break? S- can I just send? Can I just send her this one sentence, please? Just one last sentence. Okay, hold on. Let me get this. This is the problem with America's youth. They can't focus on anything. Well, they can't put their phones down for a second. I have trouble putting my phone down because I want to do a lot of things. I want to tinker with my fantasy lineup. I want to check Twitter. Okay, okay, okay. Wait, hold on. Wait, hold on. Sorry. No. I'm giving you your phone back when we get to your story. This is ridiculous. Okay, 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 okay. I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to listen. Give me your phone. No, I'm ready to listen. I'll give it back to you when I'm we here, get to your I'm thing. Here, no. I'm here. You're watch not. it, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. There you go. You guys are s- going to be so proud of me when you guys hear it. Okay, do you know, the next thing I'm going to tell you, i got to find out if you know this. Do you know the mascots of the Republican and Democrat Democratic Party? Like they each have an, an yeah, animal. Yeah, the elephant and the donkey. Boom, okay, you the do ass. know some stuff. 13 years old, you know. So in 19- Ooh, my bad, I That's uh, inappropriate. <laughs> In 1957, when Democratic President Harry Truman visited Disneyland, he refused to ride the Dumbo the Elephant ride because the (gasps) elephant is a symbol of the Republican Party. But Dumbo. Yeah, but he wouldn't ride it because it was an elephant. All right, I'm going to have to skip a couple things. Uh, Why are you skipping so much? Because... I I can't even ex- I'd have to spend more time okay, explaining okay, okay, to you okay, what okay, it means. Okay, okay, okay. The director of the Detroit Public Library in 1957 banned the Wizard of Oz 
for having no value for children of today and for supporting negativism. There was a theory. You know, there's a theory about the Wizard of Oz. There is. Oz, you know, hold on. You know, like how, like everything, the backstory of it was like really bad. Like Judy Garland, I'm pretty sure played Dorothy. I don't know, <laughs> but whoever played Dorothy, whoever played Dorothy, yeah, it was Judy Garland. Like they smoked like ten packs of cigarettes a day or something. I don't know but if that's true or not. She was a kid. Yeah, but I don't know. If, but she smoked like a lot of, like she smoked like a ton of cigarettes a day for some reason. And the second one was like the snow. You know, you know the snow in that movie. Yeah. It was like this really toxic, like thing. Like it was super toxic, and um, they like I don't know if they got sick, but it was like poisonous. Wasn't she like a child? Yeah, she did 80 cigarettes a day. Judy Garland's strict diet while filming The Wizard of Oz consisted of chicken soup, black coffee, and up to 80 cigarettes a day. Yeah, and then she, like, the snow, you can search up the snow. So she must have stunk. What was wrong with the snow? The snow was, like, toxic. It was, like, poisonous. The fake snow? It was, like, they had something in it and it was poisonous. And then the last thing, this was a, I'm pretty sure this was a, yeah, this was like debunked. Like it was, it wasn't true. So were you gonna say it anyway? But yeah, because it's interesting. In the one scene where they're all like, all the characters like skipping down the yellow brick road. Yeah. Um. People claimed that they saw like a hanging munchkin in a tree. Oh boy. And there wasn't. That's it was not like true. it was something else. I don't know what it was, but it was not a hanging It's like munchkin. three men and a baby. There's supposedly a ghost in the background of one of the scenes. It might have been that, but everybody not true. people thought it was like a hanging munchkin. Well, like, why anyway. Would they do, why would they film with that? Are you f- <laughs> Are you familiar with the film or the comic strip The Peanuts? You know who the Peanuts gang yes. is? Yes. Who? Who's the main character? Charlie Brown. Okay, wow, you do know. So that started in 1950, but at that time, Charlie Brown was only a four-year-old. And then in 1957, they made him six years old. And then since 1979, he's been about eight years old. (laughs) I don't know why I kept that in there. (laughs) All right, now we're going to jump into the timeline. We're just going to jump in. That was a big nothing burger. So we're going to jump into January 1957. Are you ready to hear some things? Yes. January 6, 1957. You know who Elvis Presley is? No. <laughs> yes, I know yeah, who do. it is. Do you love Elvis Presley? I don't so, know. have you ever did you ever hear about him being on TV like when he became a rock star, rock and roll was brand new, right? And so they didn't do stuff. Like, it wasn't music couldn't be fast and loud like it is, and they definitely people did not like his gyrating. He gyrated his hips and everybody thought that was way too sexual. Did you know that? It was a little weird. <laughs> it's a little weird, but people didn't do anything like that at all. But women yeah, yeah. loved it and they screamed. But on January 6th, 1957, it was his third and final appearance on Ed Sullivan, which was like the main evening talk show. It would be like Jimmy Fallon now. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and this was the legendary moment when CBS censors wouldn't allow his entire body to be shown. So they only showed him from the waist up because they didn't want his gyrating to be on TV. <laughs> Did you know that? His gyrating. They didn't? That's what That's what. It sounds like an STD. Well, in the 50s, like your great-grandmother, rest in peace, Gigi, she, her generation didn't like this kind of stuff. If Elvis you heard the stuff. word gyrate, you would think it was an infection. You think? I would think it's 
an infection. Well, this was when Elvis was on Ed Sullivan gyrating his hips, moving his hips. Uh, but it kind of added more to his mystique as people could, but the audience would scream, the girls would all scream. Uh, I guess Ed, the director of the Ed Sullivan show decided to do this because when Elvis was on his second time, he put uh, a cardboard tube down the front of his trousers and manipulated it to make the studio audience scream. What do you mean? To make him look like he I guess it was looked like a, a, boner? a wiener, I guess. It's a little weird. That I don't know if that's true. That was that was an explanation you know the former director of the Ed You know show. like the new like Elvis Presley movie thing with Austin Butler who plays him? Oh, I, I I maybe have heard of this. What about it? Like it's a it got really big and Austin Butler was like so into the role that like after that like he's like been speaking like Elvis Presley so it's like he's like a crazy guy that thinks he's Elvis Presley. Well, he just like got so like deep into the role like he started he just like speaks like Elvis Presley like stop. That's weird. Jim Carrey kind of did that with Andy Kaufman. Who's Andy Kaufman? Andy Kaufman basically I was told today I look like him with my stupid haircut. Uh, yeah, that's not stupid. You look good. Now today somebody told me I look like Andy Kaufman. They can kill themselves. Whoa! So I probably should say I'll show you that. what Andy Kaufman looks like. I probably should not. He's say not that. attractive. Let me tell you that much. Uh, oops. What did he do? He was a comedian. Is that what I look like? That's what I look like. You don't look like him. My hair looks like that though. Mm, a little bit. See, my hair looks. But gross. the haircut isn't bad. Okay. I gotta get a cut. Anyway, okay. Now we're gonna do. We'll see if you hate birthdays or not because we're gonna do a birthday. Our first birthday, January fifteenth. Do you like birthdays? Do you hate birthdays? That's Celebrity the day birthday? before mine. January 15th, day before you. All right. Uh, Mario Van Peebles was born. He was a Mexican actor. I didn't know he was born in Mexico City. I thought he was an African-American gentleman. Uh, but he was born in Mexico City, Mexico, and he's the son of writer, director, actor, musician Melvin Van Peebles and German actress and photographer Maria Marks. You probably don't know any of the Van Peebleses, do you? You don't know who I'm talking about. Um, I was born on the same day as Lynn Manuel Miranda. Really? That not the same day. Yes. I mean, not the same date. Not yeah. The same day. You're not the same age. All right. So I was really excited to share this one with your mom because she'd have been like, "Why are we talking about Mario Van Peebles?" But Mario Van Peebles' father was an awesome black exploitation director. And you probably don't know what that is, but in the seventies, there was all these cool uh, films starring black people that were like cool and funky and uh, yeah. stuff like that. So. Melvin Van Peebles was famous, and then Mario Van Peebles was kind of a younger guy, and he was a director as well. But he's a famous movie director and actor, I think, and he, I think he did comedy too. But he met your uncle, Uncle Ando, met him one time. That's uh, so crazy. And Uncle and Uncle Ando happened to meet him when he met Mario Van Peebles. Your uncle Andy had a T-shirt on at the time that said <laughs> he he bought this shirt because it was funny. It said. Guns don't kill people. You know the end of that statement? Guns don't kill people. People mm. kill people. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. So he had a shirt that said, guns don't kill people. Mario Van Peebles. <laughs> Which makes no sense. It's just funny. <laughs> but he, I would be so embarrassed. But he met Mario Van Peebles while he was wearing that shirt. Mario Van Peebles thought that was so great. He asked him if he could have the shirt. And so your uncle Lando took his shirt off and gave it to him. <laughs> and then Mario Van Peebles gave him a hat for, cause he was directing uh shaft or he was directing Badass, I think at the time, which is a movie about mm-hmm. his dad, I think. So anyway, long story short, Mario Van Peebles was born January 15th, 1957. And you don't know who that is. 
Okay. And now we are going to talk about the one I told you I'm going to wing it. January 22nd. Uh, a mad bomber named George Metesky was born. That's crazy. So we're going to get into this one, okay? Um, I'm going to start backwards. So accompanied by Waterbury police, four New York police department detectives arrived at Metesky's home with a search warrant. Shortly before midnight on Monday, January 22nd, 1st, 1957, they asked him for a handwriting sample and to make a letter G. He made the G, looked up and said, I know why you fellas are here. You think I'm the mad bomber. The detectives asked what FP stood for, and he responded, FP stands for fair play. He led them to the garage workshop where they found his lathe. Back in the, <laughs> back in the house, they found pipes and connectors suitable for bombs hidden in the pantry, as well as three cheap pocket watches. Flashlight batteries, brass terminal knobs, and unmatched wool socks of the type used to transport the bombs. Metesky had answered the door in pajamas after he was ordered to get dressed for the trip to Waterbury Police Headquarters. He reappeared wearing a double-breasted suit buttoned. Why would, why, was he give, why would he give himself away like that, though? Well, I think they already had him. And here are here's what all happened. So, Metesky's first bomb was in 1940. To 41. It was a crude, short length of brass pipe filled with gunpowder with an ignition mechanism made of sugar and flashlight batteries enclosed in a wooden toolbox, and he left it on a consolidated Edison power plant windowsill. It was found before it could go off. It was wrapped in a note written in distinctive block letters and signed FP, stating, Con Edison Crooks, this is for you. Oh. Some investigators wonder if the bomb was an intentional dud since it if it had exploded the note would have been obliterated so they weren't sure and then in september of 1941 a bomb with a similar ignition mechanism was found lying in the street about five blocks away from the consolidated edison headquarters uh and this one had no note but it was also a dud police theorized that the bomber might have spotted a police officer and dropped the bomb without setting its fuse so those are those two the first two bombs and shortly after that second bomb, the police received a letter in block capital letters. And it said, I will make no more bomb units for the duration of the war because World War II had just started. Mm-hmm. My patriotic feelings have made me decide this. Later, I will bring the Con Edison to justice. They will pay for their dastardly, dastardly deeds. Now, 1951 to 1956, true to his word, Metesky planted no bombs between 41 and 51 during the war, choosing instead to send letters and postcards to police stations, newspapers, private citizens, and Con Edison. Investigators studied the penciled block letter messages, noted that the letters G and Y had an odd shape, possibly indicating European education. The long hiatus since the last bomb and the improved construction techniques of the first new bomb led investigators to believe that the bomber had served the military. For the new wave of bombings, Metesky mainly chose public buildings as targets, bombing several of them multiple times. Bombs were left in phone booths, storage lockers, and restrooms in public buildings, including Grand Central Terminal, five times. Pennsylvania Station, Radio City Music Hall, the New York Public Library, and... Do these places not have cameras? More. No, this is 1950s. They don't have cameras. He left them in the subway. He bombed movie theaters where he cut into the seat upholstery and slipped explosive devices inside. 
Uh, oops. This is all between 51 and 56. It's all kinds like, of why bombs. Would, why would you... Why would you do it? Like, what's the point? Unless, like, unless there's somebody that you hate, why would you just, like, kill a ton of innocent people? It doesn't make any sense. Well, he was upset about the consolidated Edison headquarters, that electricity company is who they were. So then why, don't, why, does it, why did he have to bomb, bomb all these places? Why didn't he just bomb that place? Well, he's crazy. And so he left a note. They found another note in the 50s that said, Bombs will continue until the con- consolidated Edison company is brought to justice for their dastardly acts against me. I have exhausted all other means. I intend with bombs to cause others to cry out for justice for me. Uh, the letter directed police to the Paramount Theater in Times Square, where a bomb was discovered and disabled, and to a telephone booth at Pennsylvania Station where nothing was found. Mm. On November 28th, a coin-operated locker at the IRT 14th Street subway station was bombed without injury. Near the end of the year, the Herald Tribune received another letter warning, Have you noticed the bombs in your city? If you are worried, I am sorry. And also, if anyone is injured, but it cannot be helped, for justice will be served. I am not well, and for this I will make the Con Edison sorry. Yes, they will regret their dastardly deeds. I will bring them before the bar of justice. Public opinion will condemn them, for beware. I will place more units under theater seats in the near future. FP. That's so weird. Yeah, it's crazy guy. Leaving bombs. Can you imagine how crazy worried everybody would be? I would, like, never want to go anywhere. In 1952, a phone booth at the Port Authority bus terminal... Uh, exploded, uh, no injury there. 1953, bombs exploded in seats at Radio City Music Hall and at the Capitol Theater with no injuries. A bomb again exploded near the Oyster Bar in Grand Central Terminal, this time in a coin-operated rental locker. Again, no injuries. Police described this one as a homemade product of a publicity-seeking jerk, a fat jerk like me. Uh, an un- unexpected bomb was found in a rental locker at Pennsylvania Station in 1956. A a 74-year-old men's room attendant at Pennsylvania Station was seriously injured when a bomb in a toilet bowl exploded. A young man had reported an obstruction, and the attendant tried to clear it using a plunger. Among the porcelain fragments, investigators found a watch frame and a wool sock. A guard at the RCA building in Rockefeller Center discovered a piece of pipe about five inches long in a phone booth. A second guard thought it might be useful in a plumbing project, took it home on the bus to New Jersey, where it exploded on his kitchen table early the next morning. No one was injured. A December 2nd bombing in 1956 uh, at the Paramount Theater in Brooklyn left six of the theater's 1,500 occupants injured, one seriously, and drew tremendous news coverage and editorial attention. The next day, Police Commissioner Stephen P. Kennedy ordered what he called the greatest manhunt in the history of the police department. On December 24th, a New York Public Library clerk using a phone booth dropped a coin. Looking up after he retrieved it, he saw a maroon-colored sock held to the underside of the shelf by a magnet. The sock contained an iron pipe with a threaded cap on each end. After consulting with other employees, he threw the device out a window into Bryant Park, bringing the bomb squad and more than 60 police officers and detectives to the scene. In a letter to the New York Journal of America the next month, Bateski said that the public library bomb as well as the one discovered later that same week inside a seat at the Times Square Paramount had been planted months before throughout the investigation the prevailing theory was that the bomber was a former Con Ed employee with a grudge against the company Con Edison employment records were reviewed but there were hundreds of other leads tips and crank letters to be followed up on detectives ranged far and wide checking lawsuit records Mental hospital admissions, citizens turned in neighbors who behaved oddly, co-workers who seemed to know too much about bombs, 
A new group, the Bomb Investigation Unit, was formed to work on nothing but bomb leads. In April 1956, the department issued a multi-state alert for a person described as a skilled mechanic with access to a drill press or lathe, which he had, for his ability to thread pipe, uh, who posted mail from White Plains, was over 40, and had a deep-seated hatred of the Consolidated Edison Company. That wasn't the bomber, though, right? They were That's they were describing him. They were starting to describe him. Yeah, they were trying oh. to figure out who he was. A warning circular picture picturing a homemade pipe bomb similar to the bomb was distributed. Police distributed samples of the bomber's de- distinctive printing and asked anyone who might recognize it to notify them. A review of driver's license applications in White Plains. Wait, so I missed that. Why did he have a grudge against this company? Uh, we haven't figured this out yet. Okay. The city favored by the bomber for posting his mail found similarities in 500 people to the bomber's printing. The names were forwarded to the New York Police Department for investigation. Uh, the December 2nd bombing of the Brooklyn Paramount drew tremendous news coverage and editorial attention. The following day, Police Commissioner Stephen P. Kennedy met with commanders of every New York Police Department division and ordered what he called the greatest manhunt in the history of the police department, calling the bombers' activities an outrage that cannot be tolerated. He promised an immediate good promotion to whoever arrested the bomber and directed commanders to alert every member of the force of the absolute necessity of capture. Uh, they issued a $26,000 reward for the bomber's apprehension. They knew, they knew, they figured he was a male because historically bombers are male. Um, they hosp- they studied mental patients and they figured he'd be an average build because uh, most mental patients are average build, I guess. They yeah. think he's 40 to 50 is when people get paranoid. <laughs> Uh, they think he's precise, neat, and tidy based on his letters. They they printed this profile yeah, and put it out to people to be on the, on the lookout. Um, they thought he was a single man between 40 and 50, introvert, uh, unsocial, skilled mechanic. He's got to be neat with tools, all this stuff. And newspapers published a profile on Christmas Day of 56 alongside the so-called Christmas Eve bombed the story about this uh, Christmas Eve bomb in the public library. By the end of the month, bomb hoaxes and false confessions had risen to epidemic proportions. Everybody wants fame, and yeah. so they're all doing this shit. So um, the day after the profile was published, the New York Journal American published an open letter prepared in cooperation with the police urging the bomber to give himself up. The newspaper promised a fair trial and offered to publish his grievances. Metesky wrote back the next day, signing his letter FP. He said he would not be giving himself up and revealed a wish to bring the Con Edison to justice. He listed all the locations where he had placed bombs that year and seemed concerned that perhaps not all had been discovered. Later in the letter, he said, My days on earth are numbered. Most of my adult life has been spent in bed. My one consolation is that I can strike back even from my grave for the dastardly acts against me. After some editing by police, the newspaper published his letter on January 10th, along with another open letter asking him for more information about his grievances. And the second letter he wrote provided some details about the materials used in the bombs. And he also said, when a motorist injures a dog, he must report it. Not so with an injured workman. He rates less than a dog. I tried to get my story to the press. I tried hundreds of others. I typed tens of thousands of words. Nobody cared. I determined to make these dastardly acts known. I had plenty of time to think. I decided on bombs. 
The police published that letter on January 15th and asked Bomber for further details and dates about his compensation case so that a new and fair hearing could be held. Yeah. And so they're trying to get information from him. Mm -hmm. His third letter was received by the newspaper on Saturday, January 19th. The letter complained of lying unnoticed for hours on cold concrete after his injury without any first aid being rendered, then developing pneumonia and later tuberculosis. Later added details about his lost compensation case and the perjury of his co-workers and gave the date of his injury, September 5th, 1931. The letter suggests that if he did not have a family that would be branded by his giving himself up, he might consider doing so to get his compensation case reopened. He thanked the Journal American for publicizing his case and said the bombings will never be resumed. The letter was published Tuesday, the day after Metesky was arrested. So they identified him. Because Con Edison clerk Alice Kelly had for days been scouring company workers' compensation files for employees with a serious health problem. On Friday, January 18, 1957, while searching the final batch of troublesome workers' compensation case files, those were threats were made or those that had threats that were made or implied, she found a file marked in red with the words injustice and permanent disability, words that had been printed in the journal American. The file indicated that one George Metesky, an employee from 1929-1931, had been injured in a plant accident on September 5th, 1931. Several letters from Metesky in the file uh, uh, used several letters from Metesky in the file used wording similar to the letters in the Journal American letters, including the phrase "dastardly deeds." The police were notified shortly before five that evening. They initially treated the notification as just one of a number of leads they were working on, but asked Waterbury Police to do a discreet check on George Metesky and the house at Seventeenth Fourth Street. So that's kind of how they found him. They pretty yeah. much that's it. You know, it's going to get him. So January thirty first, nineteen fifty seven, there was a mid air collision by two airplanes. Uh, a Douglas DC-7B operated by Douglas Aircraft Company was involved in a mid-air collision with a U.S. Air Force Northrop F-89 Scorpion crashed into the schoolyard of Pacoma Junior High School located in Pacoima, a suburb area in the San Fernando Valley, Valley of Los Angeles. Can you imagine if two planes crashed in your schoolyard? I would be freaked out. Wouldn't you be upset? Everybody would be well, I would be upset if somebody got hurt. But if nobody got hurt, then everyone would be, like, talking about it, you know? Yep. On the school playground, when it crashed, were 220 boys ending their outdoor athletic activities. The wreckage broke upon impact in numerous pieces, and intense fires began due to the aircraft's fuel and oil. Distinct craters were made in the playground by each of the four engines, as well as the main center fuselage section. Two students were struck and killed by this wreckage and debris, a third gravely injured, Student died two days later in a local hospital. An estimated number of at least 75 more students of the school playground suffered injuries ranging from critical to minor. Can you imagine? Wouldn't you just have nightmares the rest of your life? I would. If that happened? Oh, yeah. The plane crashed. I was the victim of the plane crashing in our playground. But we don't have a playground. You don't have a playground? Middle no. schools don't anymore, do they? We have like 10 fields. You just got fields because you're out in the We have like boondocks. 10 fields, but we don't have a... We have a softball field, we have a baseball field, we have a soccer field, but we don't have a football field. You don't have a slide or merry-go-rounds? I wish. All right. We're jumping in February now. February 1st, 1957. Here's a little story. 
when Northeast Airlines Flight 823 crashed on Rikers Island on February 1st. Rikers is a famous prison island. Mm-hmm. Uh, prisoners were released from the prison building to help pull people from the wreckage of this crash. If I was a prisoner, I would run away. Some of those prisoners had their sentences commuted or reduced for acts of heroism during the incident. Never mind, I would not run away. Well, yeah, if you were a hero, they'd let you do that. You shouldn't be in prison anyway. I would never be in prison. Uh, February 5th, 1957, Perry Henry Young Jr. became the first African-American pilot for a regularly scheduled airline in the U.S. Yay. Uh, After weeks, he was an American aviator who trained the Tuskegee Airmen. Have you heard of the Tuskegee Airmen? No. You should look that up. They were amazing uh, World War II uh, African-American pilots that were heroes. Uh, That's a big, huge thing. Tuskegee Airmen. You should look that up and be proud that you know it. Okay? That's something they don't teach you in school because they don't teach you cool stuff like that. Uh, On February 14th, 1957... Some 10 years after, do you know who Jackie Robinson is? Have you ever yeah. heard of him, the baseball player? You do. Yeah. You know what he did? He broke the Major yeah. League color barrier. So 10 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, a bill was put forth by Senator Leon Butts barring Negro players to play baseball with white players. What does that mean? Like barring like they can't? Yeah. He didn't, yeah, they didn't want, this was in, a, uh, this was in Georgia. They didn't want black players b- to be able to play with white players. That's why his last name is Butts. Ten years after, yeah, he's a, he was a butthead. At the time, Georgia didn't have any major league teams. I don't know where the Braves played originally, but they weren't in Atlanta yet. Uh, but they did have several minor league teams. And some major league teams played spring training in Atlanta. Um, so... And it, it passed. They passed it because they were so freaking racist still in 1957. Yeah. Isn't that awful? Yeah. Um, the Georgia Senate unanimously approved his bill, barring... Like, it's a game. I know. How it, are you going to segregate a game? They it, it barred black people from playing baseball with white people, except at religious gatherings. That's like saying... That's like saying... Oh, you're black. You can't play hide and seek with me. Isn't it ridiculous? Like what? That's how things were. They really were like so that. So stupid. And the the fine was up to a thousand dollars in imprisonment imprisonment for sixty days for anybody uh, letting black people play with white people. Isn't that awful? That's so the Braves hard. and the Cardinals both played spring training there, which was a problem. Just ridiculous. It's just awful. And people think it was so racism was millions of years ago, and it really it's still wasn't that it's long still ago. happening. It still happens. I mean, luckily this. Specifically, doesn't happen, but there's definitely people who wish that was the case. Probably, yeah, awful, awful people. But that brings us to February twenty fifth, nineteen fifty seven. You're going to tell us, I guess, an awful, awful story that is tragic, right? You have a tragic story to tell us that your mom was going to cover, so I'm she did all the research, sure. and you're going to just read it word for word for what she wrote down. Yeah. And that after you're done, that'll be the end of the podcast. That's the episode. Okay. So. Tell this story, so, and I'm going to be a bad parent for letting my daughter talk about okay, it. Okay, so this story is called The Boy in the Box. So on February 25th, 1957, yeah. a young muskrat hunter set out to check his traps set near a park just north of Philadelphia. Okay. As he moved through the brush, he found a small cord- cardboard box lying, like, discarded on the ground. Okay. Inside was the naked body of a boy wrapped up in a plaid blanket, so he had to be small. 
Yeah, to fit in a box. Fearing the police would confiscate his traps if he alerted them to the box, the young hunter ignored it and resumed hunting. What? He just ignored it. He found a person in a box and he just ignored it? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I would be haunted. Several days later, a college student driving down the road noticed a bunny alongside the highway. Running alongside the highway. The student knew where there were traps in the area and stopped just to make sure the animal was safe. As oh, he trying to keep the bunny safe. Yeah. As he sifted through the underbrush searching for traps, he came across the box. Though he feared, he too feared interaction with the, with the police, the student reported the body to them. Given that the boy was young, between three and seven years old, Police were hopeful that he could be... But not a baby. It's not a baby. Yeah. This is a kid. Yeah. Holy crap. Police were hopeful that he could be quickly identified. However, once they saw the body, their hopes were dashed. While people would surely be looking for a missing boy who was healthy, well well cared for, and clearly loved, it was unlikely that he would be looking for a scrawny, dirty, malnourished one. Scrotty, dirty, malnourished one. Yeah. Unfortunately, the boy in the box was just that. His hair was matted and seemed to have been recently cut as clumps of it still clung to his body. His body was severely malnourished and covered with surgical scars, most notably on his ankle, groin, and chin. So he must have had, like, stuff wrong with him. Yeah, probably had surgery as a baby or something. Oh, yeah, he was young. The boy was estimated to be be between four and six years old, weighed 30 pounds, and stood three feet three inches. Oh, this is so sad. Blunt force trauma was the cause of death from head injuries. Despite the fact that he looked abandoned, police fingerprinted him, hoping to find a match. Sadly, no one did. There was no record that the boy ever existed. It wasn't possible to accurately estimate the time of death, so they kept the boy in the morgue, and visitors from over 10 states came to try to identify the boy. Yeah, kids that were missing and stuff. Yeah, looking for specific marks to no avail. Police sent out over 400,000 flyers of images of the boy to police stations, post offices, and courthouses all over the country. Mm. Even the AMA sent out a description of the boy, but it went nowhere. The police compared the child's footprint to those in area hospitals. And here are the key clues. The box had a serial number that traced back to a J.C. Penney's 15 miles away. It had been used to ship a bassinet. The store Uh. shipped 12 of these bassinets, but all purchases laid on cash, leaving no record. Oh, no. I feel like he could have been from a different country. Well, but I'm thinking of the bassinets. These are somebody who, who bought a bassinet because they had a baby yeah and so it seems like i feel like i feel like once he got old enough they just abandoned him because he was like too old to take care of that or they just like well they killed him obviously blunt force trauma but it was probably somebody i mean there were some backwoods podunk places and people that probably who knows eight purchases ended up contacting the police, when they read about it in the paper, they wanted to go on record that they either still had the boxes or sent it out for trash collection. Or or on record they did not kill their babies. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Police were about to determine that, they, that the box was shipped to Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. The next one was the blanket, examined by Philadelphia Textile Institute, who said it was made in either Canada or North Carolina. But there was no way to tell where this blanket was purchased because thousands were bought and sold. Ultimately, the blanket lead was a dead end. 
Another clue was a hat found 15 feet away from the box, a blue corduroy Ivy League cap about size 7 and 1 8. It was labeled Eagle Hat and Cap Company, made by the shop's owner in South Philadelphia. Hannah Robbins remembered the man who bought the hat because she had customized it for him. He was described as blonde between age, ages 26 and 30 and requested that a leather strap and buckle be added to the hat. He, put, he paid in cash and she never saw him again. Huh. Detective, detectives visited over 100 stores in the area, no leads. Huh. There were also strands of hair on the boy's body, suggesting a hasty haircut. One forensic artist named Frank Bender believed the boy was possibly raised as a girl. Oh. I know some, I know some like cases like that. Like they want, they had a boy, but they wanted a girl, so they just pretended it was a girl. Just pretended it was a girl. They're not pretended, they? but like, like told everyone it was a girl, and they were like, "No, like I'm a boy. Like I like boy stuff. Like not boy stuff. Yeah. You know what I'm talking I about? I know what you mean. Like commercialized boy stuff. Like they, they said, I not a girl. Oh, wow. Um, never heard of that. Yeah. In fact, Bill Kelly, an original investiga- investigator of the case, did say that in 1957 and 1958, a West Coast artist did, circu- did circulate a rendition of the boy as a girl, but it never produced any leads. Over the next several years, over 400,000 flyers were sent out to, Phila- to the Philadelphia area, as well as other towns in Pennsylvania. A forensic facial reconstruction was done, a drawing of a happy young boy was included on all of the posters. Flyers were posted in police stations, post offices, and even included in, in the envelopes with gas bills, but still no one came forward with information. Uh, so, like, nobody must have known about it. Nobody knew anything about this. And even if they did, they probably had some type of part in it. Or I wonder if it was, like, you know, like, there's stories of, Girls who get pregnant and don't tell anybody, you know. Yeah, they yeah. Go, or even if their parents are real strict and they don't want anybody, they don't tell anybody. They make her go hide away from everybody. Yeah. Oh, I don't know, man. In the fifties is crazy. Um, the crime scene itself was searched several times, but apart from several items of the children's clothing, all of which led nowhere, there were no leads. To this day, the boys' identities remains as much a mystery as it was in nineteen fifty-seven. Though the case has run cold, the pub- the publicity and interest in the case by amateur investigators have turned up a couple notable theories throughout the years. I was like, can't they do DNA now? Right. They probably don't have the body anymore. You don't think? No. They're probably like decomposed or something. This is the first theory about the case. In 1960... An employee of the medical examiner's office was told by a psychic that the boy in the box had come from a local foster home. The police inquired about the boy at a foster home and found blankets similar to the one he had been wrapped in hanging on the clothesline, as well as a bassinet that had been sold in the same box that the boy had been found in. Oh. The employee theorized that the boy who had had been born to to the daughter of a man who ran the foster home and that his death had been accidental. Despite the employee's insistence of these facts, no no connection was ever made between the boy in the box and the foster home. Huh. It wasn't until 40 years later that another shocking theory emerged. Oh, what's this one? A woman, referred to only as M, came forward claiming that the boy had been purchased by her abusive mother and abused for several 
years in her home purchased. The boy was purchased by the mother? Yeah. M claimed that after the boy vomited up his dinner of baked beans, his mother had bashed his head against the wall as punishment. Oh, my God. Then she'd attempted to bathe him, which during which he had during which he had died. I would not touch a woman. I would not trust a woman that only goes by M. Yeah, well, I mean, trying to stay uh, like uh, unidentifiable. Yeah, the f- the police initially followed this lead as there were remains of baked beans in the boy's stomach, and his fingers appeared to be water wrinkled. <laughs> Those were both pieces of information that were never shared with the public. They were also encouraged by M's description of the boy as a small child with long hair. This fit their theory that his hair had been recently chopped. Mm. Unfortunately, police eventually let the theory slide as they were unable to verify M's claims. After looking into M's background, they found a history of severe mental illness. When they attempted to corroborate her claims with neighbors and friends, all of them denied ever seeing a child in the home. The theory was eventually dismissed as ridiculous. But then how would she know that there's baked beans in his yeah, stomach? Yeah, I don't know, man. Theory number three. Authors Lou, Lou Romano and Jim Hoffman, who came across a lead from a man in Philadelphia, who said his family once rented a place to a man who sold his son, possibly the boy in the box. A forensic pathologist compared facial structure of the man to the boy in the box and did see similarities, but did not test further. Several other theories have been presented over the years, though all of them have been have eventually been discounted. It seems that the mystery of the boy in the box might never be solved and that America's unknown child could remain that way forever. Yeah, I guess if they don't have the... That's so messed up, though. Like, I could never... Like, that's so disgusting. Like, just abusing a child that young for... Throwing yep. up something like it's awful. What is wrong with people? Apparently, this is what he looked like. Oh yeah, I saw pictures of where they recreated him, kind of like. It's not okay. Yep, it's awful. There's some awful, awful things in the world. I would never understand child abuse. Like, what is? I don't wrong understand with that people? either. Yeah, like, have, like. like we're like, lucky. If you if you have anger issues, or if you want to take your your anger out on somebody, don't let it be your child. And even if you are going to take your anger issues on, out on a child, don't let it be physical. I think people can't like they they go in such a rage they can't control themselves. I think it's like I don't think anybody wants to do that ever. But there like some people just shouldn't be parents. That's true. They always say you have to get a license to drive a car to catch a fish, but not to have a baby. Not to have a kid. It's horrible. Yep. That was a real letdown. <laughs> that was a real downer. It's hard to uh, be excited and happy when you talk about a child that was beaten to death and left in a box and nobody missed him. Nobody was looking for him. That's even more sad. Yeah, like nobody nobody knew. No, nobody cared that he was gone. That's so, so his whole existence, seven years or six years, were probably miserable, poor kid. I think it's the, I could see it being the foster wanna, home. Or I don't want to say this. Orphanage. Like, I don't want to say this because it sounds like mean, but I feel like he was like a little bit better off, like not being gone. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, his life was probably not good. Yeah. Poor guy. Some people have it worse. Just always remember, you're lucky to have the life you have. 
Thank you for you... not abusing me and leaving me in a box. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, that's the least I could do is not. That's like my biggest fear, like getting abandoned. Like Getting that. abandoned left in the woods. Ugh. I, I, if I like got abandoned, I would literally just. I promise myself. you right now, I will never abandon you and uh, bludgeon you to death and leave you in a box in the woods. Okay? Thank you. Promise you. That makes me feel so much better. Yeah. Plus, you're almost pretty much. You're almost done growing up anyway, so you don't have much don't left. You're that. almost an old lady now, and I'm almost an old man. Like, I can't imagine myself like doing taxes and like going to work. It's a lot easier than you think. But here's the thing. Now that I've promised you, now you have to promise me, because you're going to be taking care of me soon. Don't leave me abandoned in a box in the woods. <laughs> okay? You know, when I'm an old man, I can't do anything. I'm like, <laughs> I like to hereby apologize to you, and it's recorded. I'm apologizing so, like, to you about whatever behavior start, I start having as an old if man. If you start pooping and peeing around my house like Ralphie does, I'm going to make you smell it. <laughs> That's our dog, not my father, everybody. Thanks for listening to American Timelines. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe, and tell us on Twitter if uh, we're bad parents for letting our young daughter do this. Talk about awful murders. And you should and you should totally tell them to let me be on this podcast. She more. wants to be on it more, but uh, if you got a problem with Audrey... Let us know if you got a problem with me. Let me know uh, if you want to send us money. I don't know. Never know. People get mad about all kinds of stuff. Thanks for listening, everybody. It's time to get out of here. Chuck Berry. Good job. You know (laughs) Chuck Berry is. All right, we're done. Bye bye. Matt Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music.